Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm sick. And I'm the machine. Uh, and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. Although this is our last of this like intermediary period between mm. seasons where we're just kind of going through and picking off movies that we have not seen before off of the Letterboxd Top 250. The biggins. But the machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we should say we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today... At least when we have ideas of the ideas, yeah. And today we're going to be watching the film Stalker. Zona, this is a very system of как все здесь приходит в движение. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show since the machine you know, doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Now, before we get to talking about this week's film, Dave, of course, one of the reasons people tune in to this podcast each and every week is our deep and rich fiction that we no, have built up around All the right. show. But we're back, baby. We're back on Earth. In between last episode and this episode, we've landed. Uh, you get to go back and see your family, you, which you have not seen technically for over two years now at this yes. point. Yes. But uh, we're going to stop by at my condo here first because we have an episode to record. So your mm -hmm. family is just going to have to wait have just to wait. A, it's priorities. an hour and a half longer probably. Doesn't the air feel fresher here? Like <laughs> disease free? I actually don't think that's true, but uh, <laughs> it is by my watch the year 2023, Dave. So we are back in oh. real, real time. There is a lot of bills in my bail box, so I should probably deal with those. But uh, before we do, there is a bit of feedback that I wanted to read in that was sent in to me. Getting a lot of uh, show notes here. Via, uh, I should say this was via direct message on Twitter. Oh, wow. Uh, former guest and probably future guest, Mr. Jordan Drake, wrote to us in response to our Sherlock Jr. episode from a couple mm, of weeks ago. Mm. In that episode, we brought up very quickly about the idea of frame rates in silent right. film. Right. I think it's you that was like, that mentioned, of course, it's being hand cranked. So this can't possibly be in 24 frames per second. No. I, then I jumped in knowing nothing. I was like, yeah, they probably didn't like standardize 24 frames per second until a few years after this. I have no idea what it would have been back then. Well, Mr. Jordan Drake uh, says that he could talk about this topic for literal hours. Ooh. This is his shortened down response to me asking, so like, what, what's the deal with that? Why, why do uh, silent films look the way that they do? And he said, so professionals at the time would have averaged between 16 and 20 frames per second. That is what the hand crank probably would have been able to do. Mm -hmm. But the really cool thing is that they would vary their frame rates in the middle of a shot mm. intentionally to get specific effects to happen. So if they want to speed it up. That's how sped up the road. Yeah. So you crank slower. Yeah, that makes sense. I did a class once where I had to hand crank a eight millimeter. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is weird because it's, you know, it's your hand. It's not like you can do a steady. You're not a machine. No. You should be. I highly recommend it. Now, here is where it gets super complicated this is a bunch of math that you have to get into mm. silent films would have been projected so we are now we, we've printed it 
we put it onto the film reel, they would have been projected at 18 frames per second. That is how they would have been projected when people watch them. The way that we as a modern audience see silent films are not what they would have looked like back in the time. To us, Mm. things look like they're super sped up. But that is because when we're watching it, it has to be interpolated into either 24 24. or 30 frames per second, depending on what your TV is. But they don't add frames like the way we would on a video. Regardless, he went into a bunch of detail about that that doesn't make sense to me. But... (laughs) Uh, well, well the, sorry, yeah. it does make sense to me, but then I get super confused because that, that actually happens even nowadays. Yeah. Of um, James Cameron. Well, not even that, but like standard film from like the 80s shot in 24 frames per second. Yes. If you're watching that on a modern TV, it is probably showing it to you in 30 frames per second, which means it's duplicating every third frame. So it does look slightly different and can actually 30s, have different. Yeah. It can have different run times based on that. So if you watch it in well, a theater. We're talking like seconds here, but like... Yeah, 30 is not bad. It's, it's when they brought in 60 hertz that fucked everything up. Yes, and because now you have to... Yes, yes, it does. Now things can look super, super weird because it's not a it doesn't, it's not a perfect thing. Now you're triplicating sometimes certain frames and then it yeah. look, does look kind of weird of and you what's get going that, on. that texture of like uh, almost like home video quality. Everything changes because they have to affect the original footage so much. Right. For what? To show off that Samsung can uh, flicker faster than your eye can actually perceive. I Correct. think that's where 24 comes from. I think that's the limit which our eye can detect uh, dropped frames. Sure. But but the other thing is that if you're shooting in 60 frames per second, there's less motion blur. And to our brains, it's like, oh, that yeah, does it's wrong. look weird because it- it's wrong. <laughs> no, no, but wrong. <laughs> wrong. Um, I, I wrong. do know that this has always got me because I know for sure, I guess I can't prove it a thousand percent, but I know there's movies I went to see and watched in the theater. And then when I watched them at home, it's like, this looks different. I know it didn't look like this when oh, I saw the it texture. in the theater. Yeah. But. but there's a lot of different, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of different things that happen as we're seeing, you know, just transferring film stock into VHS or DVD. There's a process change. That's why nerds think vinyl sounds better than CD, which mm. is nostalgic doesn't make well any sense. i mean technically there is less compression doesn't make sure. any sense <laughs> it doesn't make any sense you can't hear anything anyway when high def was coming into the marketplace Ooh, on tvs yes. but i still remember very vividly with my parents going into yeah. some electronic store and they were showing off look at these high definition tvs and they were showing the fifth element they were showing yeah. the fifth element on it and i was like why does it look like Everyone is wearing makeup in really, like really bad costumes. It's like, cause yeah, they're, it's so high def. It's like, oh, I can definitely tell that that is a costume someone is wearing. What it's was, weird. Uh, huh? What was the Blu-ray competitor? F- Fifth Element came out uh, in HD DVD was the HD Blu-ray. DVD. Yeah. yeah. It's probably 720p or 1080i. Remember when that mattered? And you had to worry about progressive or interlaced. Inter- interlaced and all oh, so dumb. We're dating ourselves. I mean, the fact that we know what CRT stands for. You know, I tell my son, like, there used to be uh, a radiated tube inside a panel of glass that weighed about 50 pounds for you to watch shit television. <laughs> well, I got to be super pretentious growing up when I was totally getting into film in my late teens. And I was like, Please do not buy me full screen DVDs. Yeah, I that's need the right. widescreen experience. Thing. I don't need and no, no one crop. cared at the don't time. Don't crop me. This is why we're still friends. We find little things, Kyle, where we're both losers together. No. Well, the reverse is now also true <laughs> is them like making things that were not show like shot yeah. in widescreen, widescreen. Well, I'm like, what? No, just keep it the dimensions it was shot in. It makes me so upset. Producers love to crop. Like, don't crop, man. People don't just crop. freak out about black bars on their TV. It's like, you'll deal with it. It's fine. Yeah, it's you'll, already you'll been cropped by the director. 
right? I mean, they shot it for the anamorphic or whatever it is. Anyways, this is just all to say thank you, Jordan, for writing in and illuminating it a little bit about what it was. But yes, until it was standardized a few years after that when a machine could actually crank it out and have a standardized 24 frames per second, it was probably 18 is what people were going to be viewing it at at, uh, at the time. Dave, we do have this huge cinema classic that we're tackling here today, this master of Soviet cinema, mm-hmm. Mr. Andrei Tarkovsky. What relationship do you have with him? None. I <laughs> like I recognize the name and this movie among was there's another one anyways is always on some list of films one ought to have From seen. What I gather he made he he directed other things but he made seven feature films. Six of those feature films are on the letterbox top 100 and 250 list. Yeah. And the other one, the last one, is rated 3.9. So like it is he's very he's like widely beloved amongst among cinephiles. But as, you know, Western Americans, whatever we're called, we don't get a lot of popular access to Russian film. So oh, no. I actually I don't think I've ever watched any Russian cinema before in my life. I could be wrong, but if it's not from a Western capitalist democratic country i probably haven't seen it so i definitely have but just a handful like you said there's not a huge oh you watched war and peace right i've watched war and peace the bonder truck war and peace the seven hour film which i broke up over multiple nights i did not watch that in one sitting i I know in a film class i watched some of the propaganda films that russia made in like the the, we spent three years watching american propaganda films but okay yeah yeah keep going so there's a movie from the 70s called A Slave of Love that randomly I did watch here last year that is from Russia or from the Soviet Union. And then the only other one I was going to bring up, this was in the early 2000s. There is a vampire trilogy that uh, had a decent worldwide viewing day break, day watch, something like that. I, c- I can continually forget what it was actually called, but it was a really cool viewing experience in that the english subtitles that were placed into it actually interacted with the action that was happening on screen so like blood would spurt out and someone would flick onto the actual subtitles uh-huh. down below so or someone would designed. walk through a puddle and like they would like ripple away as they That's walk cool. through it so whoever was doing the subtitling for that movie was like really playing around with how well, they the were director sounds like it. yeah that's about the extent that i know of soviet cinema again there is a lot of love for some of the auteurs that would have been around through like the i don't know 50s through the the 70s like there's there's a lot of people that mention some great stuff that was coming out at that time well six of this guy's films are in Mm -hmm. the top 250 you know why we're watching this one because on my youtube algorithm it's all about the cinematography of this film sure so i have some great things to talk about in regards to the cinematography of this film so do you just know the name of it or do you know anything about the movie no don't know anything about the movie, not not plot-wise. Yeah, just kind of uh, want to see see what it's about. So uh, what we're going to do here then, we are going to cede the means of production to the greedy capitalists for just a second and go for a break to talk about some of our sponsors. And okay. then when we come back, we're going to be talking a lot more about the movie Stalker. Maybe we'll find ourselves in the zone. How much would you be like jonesing to get into the zone? Well, honestly, Kyle, I feel like I lived my entire life in the zone. You know, I'm just keyed in at every second of every day. Mm-hmm. I'm just in a good space on top of it, one might mm-hmm. say. Do you also carry around like a little bit like a little lug nut in a sock and you just well, throw it around? how are you supposed to know where to go? 
if not uh, aiming for it and making sure you get there. I do like that idea of you like poking your head out of your door from your apartment, like chucking that down. The way it's, like, like, it's good oh, to go. Come on, come on, let's go. Heading south today. Can't, uh, you just gotta be careful because you might not be able to get out. Colin Davis, the machine, of course, is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. I know this week we are brought to you by Taproot Spotlight, a service that helps businesses and organizations pay attention to the people that they serve. Taproot tells you the news about the people and companies that are important to you. Use that information internally to keep everyone on the same page or share with the world in your newsletter, on your website and on your social media channels. Paying attention pays dividends. Find out more at taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight. That's taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight. Kyle, uh, we are part of the Alberta Podcast Network. We are. And I think what I'm going to do today, as we did last week, is uh, talk about one of our buddy podcasts that is also on the network. The only thing is I selected this one and I'm not sure they're still active. It is called The Loyal Company of the River Valley. The reason I picked it is because, uh, as most people don't know, Canada has its own professional soccer league. And Edmonton has a professional soccer league team. And uh, these guys apparently have been talking about them for 350 episodes, Kyle. Well, we should yeah. go to a Calgary game at some point. Yeah, my friend's starting to wear Calgary. Uh, is it Cavalry? Maybe. Eh. Anyways, uh, yeah, check them out. You can you can look them up at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Or they have their own website, loyalcompanyrv.libsyn.com. L-I-B-S-Y-N. Okay, Dave, we have sat down and watched this movie called Stalker. <laughs> yeah. We normally start off by me asking you, like, what is this film about? And I make a little scenario. So I, I, right. let's do that first. Uh, and then we're going to add on something that we've never done before. So they mm. did, not t- did not warn you about. But how would you no, describe this? I did a preamble. Okay. Let's, say, let's, let's say that, uh, you know, we're walking around where we, we notice some sort of like weird gated off Something's area. Different. That's what the uh, sepia color. Shotguns and like tanks around and we're peering through the chain link fence and then someone rushes towards us and we're like, oh God, what's going to happen? And all they do is they throw this VHS copy A of Stalker reel. at us. It's like, <laughs> what is this movie about? Tell us. What would you tell those people? I don't know how to describe it. How about after, is it a meteor crash? I think the subtext is that it's an alien landing. Yeah, something. So after, let's call it after some supernatural event mm-hmm. and i can't remember if it's aliens or a meteor or both in the book it is aliens but they talk around it in the film is what i felt and so uh there's a spot in russia called the zone which uh, is kind of cordoned off and it remains a mystery and certain people called stalkers uh, find their way in there uh, I think as scavengers, and we're going to follow the story of one such stalker as he tries to lead two uh, weirdos in to find out whether they can find happiness in the zone. Okay, I think I'm aligned with you there. Why did the setup here, to spoil my review of this movie, I feel I'm too stupid for this movie, Dave. <laughs> I feel I'm really dumb. <laughs> what? Okay. Because I spent most of it not really understanding what was happening at any given point. 
Like, oh. I couldn't tell you after I finished watching the movie, this is what just happened in this movie. Like, I could not tell you I what was happening. I think that's what he was trying to do. Okay. Okay. So, it took me going to Wikipedia to be like, oh, okay. So, that is what the actual plot was that was happening in this movie. A lot of times I watch movies that I'm like, oh, I don't really know what's going on. But by the end of this, it's all going to come together and I'm going to understand it. And most of the time, that is true. It's like, oh, okay. It all came together. When the credits rolled on this, like, literally could not tell you what a stalker was, what they did, what they were mm. going for, what their journey was about, what they were talking about, who they were, where they were. Like I just was for some reason, just not anything, nothing was like integrating itself into me. So I was so totally lost. Mm -hmm. Weirdly still kind of enjoying myself, but like could not tell you on an intellectual level what was going on. I just want to be aligned with you. What is happening in this movie? Just on a plot level. I and mean, then we can talk about some other stuff. Can you tell me literally what is going on plot-wise in well, this I just, movie? I don't know. I think I summed it up pretty well, at least as far as plot. I mean, if you want to go into a more detailed progression, there's a couple, a man, a woman, and they have... The, the daughter is what fucks up the whole thing at the end. But anyways, they've got a daughter who's either a mutant or a cripple. And mm -hmm. the stalker, the main protagonist... Looks like a miserable piece of shit, but his only pleasure in life is to get in and out of the zone and people pay him to go with him. And the rumor is that if they can get to this house, to this room, that their wishful happiness, their grandest dreams will come true. So it's cordoned off by the military. It takes quite a clandestine operation to get them in. Yeah, they steal a railway car to get into there. Sneak around stuff and... And then once they're in, we're in this dream zone. I thought you would have liked this more because you're all about this abstract fucking art movie shit. It gets a little weird because the first half of their journey, it's like the guy, I mean, intentionally, I think it looks like the stalker is making everything up. There's a neurosis about him and he's telling people not to go left and right. But like the two passengers, we're left thinking, <laughs> I was like, why the fuck not? Why not just walk straight? The subtext being... And again, I only got this based on reading it afterwards. I did not pick up on this while watching the movie. Because of the weird paranormal effects of the zone, why he's even throwing that thing is that if it shoots up into space, then like, oh, gravity isn't working here, so we're going to actually alter our path oh, and maneuver no, around. That is why he is throwing those things in the first place. Well, it's funny because for me, by the end of the zone piece... I started wondering if this was simply sort of a metaphor of a man struggling with rationality and faith, you know, and, and the pursuit well, yeah. of happiness. I think it's a metaphor for a lot of different things. And that's why I think I'm too dumb for this movie is that I just, it felt like something that was a metaphor that it's commenting on something that I just have no basis for understanding so it's like i get that this is a metaphor i get that this is not like one-to-one -one or that they're exploring these different philosophical concepts but i don't know enough about the philosophical concepts for it to mean anything to me I so i, I kind of ended up being lost for most of it yeah I, I think lost is fair especially i think bookending the daughter at the end i think that was a mistake again having read the plot of the book then it starts to make sense what even happens well, with the daughter. Mean in the context of the film you totally know, agree at the context of the movie it's like oh that really came out of nowhere yeah about her having telekinetic telekinetic abilities basically is what it shows at the very end i wish i could use my mind to push you off of high things this movie is weird it's hard it to work through it is pretty and i, I was thinking kind of like throw away your books you know the intent to depict emotion or thematic elements with different color palettes and sepia tones and 
you know, it's all in there mm-hmm. as an art film. I know For that sure. when I Wikipedia, critics agreed uh, with my thought, like, why is this so fucking long? <laughs> and, you know, his response apparently was like, yeah, because it's supposed to be long. Fuck off. Right. So. Yeah. Which I get. I mean, I, I'm totally on board fine. with like creative choice and stuff like that. But yeah, Russian critics at the time were not super hot on this movie when it was first released. Uh, before we get too far afield, but I, I just I really want to I don't know why, but this is just my big thing just to set it out here. So. Uh, this is from like the last half of the, the little plot synopsis that's on Wikipedia. So we have these three characters, right? We have the stalker that we've mentioned, who's yes, his job is to go into the zone, scavenge for things, sells them off. That's basically how he gets money. And people pay him to travel into the zone to go to this room where they can wish for whatever they want. And then they get it is basically, I think, what is well, the, what they, is carry in, they carry in a hope of what they believe happiness is. Yes, sorry, yeah. yeah. It's not like I want a new car. Correct, uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, this thing's gonna happen now and I'm going to be pleased with myself. So there is the stalker, the writer, and the professor. The writer expresses his fear of losing his inspiration. The professor is a bit less anxious, but is carrying around this uh, backpack. And so they travel through all these tunnels, finally get to their destination when this Phone rings and the professor is the one who decides to answer the phone and it's a colleague who tells him that he's having relations with his wife. Uh, once they get to the room, the professor reveals his true intention in undertaking the journey. The professor has brought a 20 kiloton bomb with him and he intends to destroy the room to prevent its use by evil men. Three men enter a physical and verbal standoff just outside the room that leaves them all exhausted. This is when the writer realizes that when this other character called Porcupine, who we never see, when this Porcupine character met his goal, despite his conscious motives, the room fulfilled Porcupine's secret desires for wealth rather than bring back his dead brother. So this prompted the guilt-ridden porcupine to commit suicide. The writer tells them that no one in the whole world is able to know their true desires, and as such, it is impossible to use the room for selfish reasons. The professor gives up on his plan of destroying the room and instead disassembles the bomb and scatters its pieces, then no one attempts to actually go into the room itself. This is when the stalker, the writer, and the professor go back. They meet at the bar. The stalker's wife and daughter come. And after returning home, the sucker tells his wife how humanity has lost its faith and belief needed for both tra- traversing the zone and living a good life. As the stalker sleeps, his wife contemplates the relationship in a monologue delivered directly to the camera. Uh, this is Sunday Bloody Sunday that going direct, doing the talking to the I was camera bit. Very more like th- throw away your books, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels. Except this one's made by an actual filmmaker, but the ideas around how to structure it is very similar. And then, like, as we kind of already mentioned, then we see the couple's daughter. She recites this love poem and appears to have this telekinesis as she pushes these three drinking glasses off the table. And then the entire apartment starts to shake. That's how this movie ends. So, is there anything you would add to that? Like, do you disagree with how that's laid out? No, no. The only thing that occurs to me, Kyle, is for some reason, you want something very literal out of this. Like, the fact that you would even Google... And it's so ironic because for the last three years, you've been trying to staunchly project yourself as someone who doesn't need a plot. You know, it's not important. Plotting's not important. Well, in our bonus episode, that is my argument I'm going to make. So it's not that I do. It's not. Stupid. I think it, it's more so that I knew there was a plot and I wasn't understanding what was actually happening. There's and no it real to, plot. It like, really frustrate me because it's like I couldn't pick up on what was actually happening at any given moment. You know what this is? I mean, I, I, this is too broadly, especially because I have never watched Russian cinema before. And I'm certainly not uh, an expert in anything to do with ro- Russian cultural um, self-identity. But this does remind me of... Of my favorite Dostoevsky book, 
Brothers Karamazov mm. in the section The Grand Inquisitor. And I think that there's this preoccupation with a lot of particularly European cultures um, at the turn of the century wrestling between science, faith, and logic. In that one, they have this, in the Brothers Karamazov, this great scene where the Inquisitor actually meets Jesus and they talk about why the world isn't ready for his resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, we have this problem between uh, whether people are even willing to be saved. And I think I, that's the place where my brain ended up at the end of this film before the daughter uh, was a mutant, like an X-Men. I felt like what was really happening is these three characters are representing an existential problem that Russians are facing right now, maybe in communism or culturally. And I only put Russians because it's a Russian drug. I think we all do this, where um, happiness is this illusory thing where you can try to find it with reason as you're trying to do it by reading a plot summary on Wikipedia. You can do it with creativity, right? But creativity and reason without faith, they end up nowhere. And the stalker has only faith, but he's not happy. So it's kind of this weird trap, right? And you know, for that part, kind of, what was the other movie we watched last year? It's, yeah, it's, I'm using this term now, it's earworming me. It's like when I finished the movie, I was like, oh, can I get my two and a half hours back? But then every day when I was thinking about what we're going to talk about, I'm like, you know, if I take away the plot and I just see this as a uh, reflection of different parts of a, of one psyche, the, the movie makes a lot more sense. Uh, well, I, I've said this a lot for you know, challenging films that we've watched. When it's my first time watching it, it's sometimes hard to like figure out what yeah. my real thoughts are. Just like other films that I've mentioned, like, well, Sunday Blade Sunday is a good example because that was one that earwormed me that the longer I stood apart from it, it's like the more I actually like that movie. Mm -hmm. I feel Tokyo Story is going to do the same thing for me. And this movie, I am positive on it. It makes it sound like I'm super negative, but it's mostly negative about me, is that I think that the longer I stay away from this, like, oh yeah, that thing and that thing and this thing. And if I were to watch it again, I'd probably have a deeper appreciation for it. But because this is my first watch, going in kind of cold and not really knowing what this movie was about, I just was like, I'm trying to grapple with with the specifics because um, whether it was like the dialogue was going so fast and I was like trying to keep up with just what the words were that they were saying and not internalizing what was actually being said to me. It was it was hard because I have now, I'm gonna do this a couple of times throughout this, read a quote from this movie like, well, that's super profound. But I didn't get that profoundness while I was watching this that's movie. difficult. Yeah, I mean, we're reading the subtitles, but this is a movie that's visually arresting. So it's hard sure. to split that, that, that is what took me because i was not bored ever in this movie i really no. wasn't i was like i was all along for the ride it was just like but i don't really know what's happening at any yeah. given point here even when the character brings out the bomb it's like okay i know it's a bomb but i couldn't understand like why is he bringing the bomb why is he upset about the room i get it's about human nature but isn't Again. that what science does right i mean not to pick on you too much because i do this all the time too but the idea that we have to have a literal representation representation let's say in text about what this is supposed to mean mm -hmm. really destroys the joy of experiencing it sure and then if you become resentful as let's say a scientist or a logician might be Instead of saying, oh, well, God might be for you, they'll be like, we're going to destroy God because, you know, if I can't believe, that means you shouldn't believe as well. So, I think there's like tones of that. Uh, it is quite weird <laughs> to suddenly yeah, whip out this not, cylinder and they're like... <laughs> this is a very weird movie. Like, yeah. this starts off as like a, a sepia toned, almost yeah. like black and white film. I'm Yellowish, like, oh, yeah. I didn't, I thought this was going to be like this lush, beautiful like That's cinematography. Right. That's what I was led to believe this movie was about. So, it does like the Wizard of Oz thing. We start off in the black and white and then get into the color version as they get into the zone itself, which is kind of a neat reveal. Uh, and then it gets surreal. By the midpoint where you have like disappearing owls and sand dunes and yeah. uh, other stuff 
even though they're like People traveling through the muck of, uh, of everything and appearing you know mm -hmm. on top of each other force weird force perspectives and for sure. uh, yeah pretty interesting laying down and sleeping in a bog for some yeah. reason and <laughs> <It's> <laughs> having dreams it's not gonna be comfortable i mean were they sleeping or did they pass out i speaking of i gotta be honest with you i was actually disappointed that this is running in a four by three mm. <laughs> when it opened i was like oh you know i thought this is gonna be some huge panoramic expansive especially I think YouTubers crop it because they put thumbnails of that sand dune scene and it makes it look so epic. But it actually, when you watch it, it's in a box. And right. what makes it beautiful or interesting is that for, I mean, they look like almost uh, cardboard cutouts. And every time they change the camera angle, they're at different distances and there's yes. more or less dunes. You know, it's very interesting. But my own preconceptions of what an epic movie is supposed to look like were getting in my way for sure. So this is taking a long time for me to ask you this question I normally ask, but like, what were your thoughts on the movie? <laughs> well, I think we're talking about my thoughts on the yeah, movie. Yeah. I'm not unhappy we watched it, but I think we're going to go counter the popular critical opinion. You know, there's that thing that I'm always upset about you know, do people tell you what they actually felt or they tell you what they think they're supposed to look like to sound intelligent? When I read some of the letterbox reviews about this film, I mean, the level of pretension, right, is, is a little shocking. This is a film people want to feel very academic in appreciating. So, I don't know, we'll probably upset some people. I Yeah, it's a mixed bag, right? It's not something I would ever ask anyone I know to watch. Uh, except for nerds. And even that, I would definitely have some kind of preface. A little caveat on that about what types yeah. of films they like, yes. Or you could just throw someone you know loves film in the deep end just to find out how awkward it was for them as well. Maybe half the reason why it's so high in letterbox is people are watching this in film class and their fucking teacher has told them, hey, you know, don't watch this thinking that this is going to be a plot. Kind of like uh, as our bonus episode we'll share. Mm -hmm. My thoughts about uh, Koyana Aski or whatever. Koyana Tsukatsi, yeah. So, um, it's just it's just this thing, right? Like, I, I think this movie actually talks about this, you know? It absolutely does. And that's what I mean. I, I think that if I return to this, I think some of it's going to mean more to me. I've read those reviews too. I'm going to go the positive route and say that there's positivity behind that. They're not just making stuff up. That they truly had this deep emotional experience to me uh, with this movie. For me, I think this is always going to, like, tickle my gross intellectual side but i Ugh. don't have an emotional connection to this film at least not at this point and so there's always going to be like this distance away i think there's, there's accomplished filmmaking like the the composition is great i think like what the actors are told to do is well the actors done. are great in this yeah i'm going to think about this movie forever after having watched this <laughs> i i just like i then read these other people's reactions like this deep emotional connection and, like i was balding by the end i'm like i just was not oh, there wow. like i just could not get any type of emotional response yeah I don't the know. intellectual side yeah absolutely i get that but like there's so much stuff to talk about after this film i agree with that i just don't see the emotional connection that people are tapping into i'm just not there but who knows maybe if i watch this a second time i'll be like, oh my god it's been unlocked for me i well, and now i'm totally in this whole entire journey your experience in life are going to inform of course how you connect with any media so like after i had a kid the things that make me cry change right sure. because yeah, what's important becomes, you know, parenting and watching all these people. So any theme like that, I'm ugly bawling. Whereas when I was in my 20s, I would get upset at films like that because mm -hmm. I thought they were bullshit. So perhaps having been through several midlife crises in the last 10 years, when I watch a film like this, it reminds me of not just like when I read philosophical books in my 20s, but why I missed such an opportunity in you know, drinking instead of fucking studying because it would have been so handy now, not just for this podcast, but to just kind of like draw on 
historical reflections of how hard it is to exist as a person, right? So when I watch a movie like this, I'm not going to cry. I think that's weird too. But this is actually like, uh, do you recommend someone <laughs> to read uh, Being in Time or something? No, like you're not going to tell someone to read a philosophical book. It's fucking boring. But uh, if you ever do, you, know, you may glean something out of it. And I think this is this is a philosophical textbook film. Like it's an academic film. I, yeah. I, I think some people will read Descartes and cry, but they should be locked up because it's fucking weird to cry about whether... Uh, because of uh, reason. I mean, he's the professor in this, that reason is God and that God is uh, projected through the fact that I can use logic if I can rationalize it, if I can invent it in my mind and it has some form of reality. That's weird for me, but someone might have read that and started crying. I mean, it's the reason why he's so famous. So, I think this movie lives in that space. It's uh, thought-provoking if you let it be. Uh, if you want nothing to do with that, and you want to watch a Marvel movie, which I am doing and I love, uh, this movie is going to be fucking terrible, right? It's uh, hard to watch. That being said, I would recommend this with the caveat being like, it has to be the right person. Like, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's something I definitely would say like, yeah, people should watch this if you're interested in, in Tarkovsky and Russian cinema, that sort of thing. Art art filmmaking. Art films, sure. yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. I would say, I'm trying to think, there's Throw Away Your Books. What's the other big art film that we've watched? And there's another one that uh... I'm forgetting. I don't know. We've watched too many movies. Now. Anyways, this is Art much film. better than Throw Away Your Books, in yeah. my opinion. But kind of like we're talking about, I I would think, and I don't know, if we were forced to watch Throw Away Your Books again, I think our rating would increase because Possibly. Yeah, yeah. with the context and the idea that it's meant to be not a film, but like a series of essays, essentially. Right. You know, I mean, it might change I, the way we watch that film. And I get that to, to a certain yeah. extent. I think maybe, yeah, coming into Stalker a second time, understand like, okay, this is my expectations yeah. now for this film, it probably would increase. Again, going back to the narrative or plot thing, like you're talking to someone who who's one of his favorite films, like probably in my top 50 at the very least is Fantasia. Like I love that film so much. And the first 20 minutes of that is just lines and shapes flashing on a screen. Like there's, there's it's a pretty, pretty out there for Disney animation type of thing. So it's not like I need some strong like morality or something going through, but it's like, I don't know. There was something about this that kept pushing me away. I just like the dancing hippos. I think maybe as a armchair psychoanalyst, Fantasia Free is more nostalgia than anything. I mean, that, that should not be in a top 50 of all time. Sure. It's a great film. As a film. But, but, great, um, great film. No, there are so <laughs> many better films. There are easily 15 films that are better than Fantasia that have been made in the history of mankind. Mm, <laughs> I'd say there's only 49 of them. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate. Um, but okay, so talking about some of these philosophical concepts... Here's one of them. So the writer at one point says, my conscience wants vegetarianism to win over the world. Mm -hmm. And my subconscious is yearning for a piece of juicy meat. But what do mm -hmm. I want? So when I read that out, it's like, oh my gosh, like this is like firing my Oh, you don't remember him saying that in the film. I That stuck out to me because I lived that life, right? I was vegetarian and vegan for 10 years. I think I, well, no, it's not that I don't remember him. It's I don't still think it resonated very much because it was just yeah. after a series of just random yeah. things people are saying without there mm. really being a conversation attached to it. But that by itself, yeah, that's a fascinating topic. You could almost make an entire movie out of just that. Yeah, it's called Food Incorporated. But I often wonder that as someone who was closeted for so much of their life, I, there was a lot of work I had to do about things that I pretended to like and then said that I liked that I did because that's what society told me. And then when I started to come out, I was like, do I actually like this thing? Is this something that I enjoy? And really I'm parsing is like, 
did I convince myself that I like this, but I don't actually like it? It, it really messes with your brain when you try to try and unpack that sort of thing. I'm still working through some of those things like, do I actually like this thing? Or did I just tell myself I like this at 15 and have internalized it so much that it's kind of come become part of my personality and sometimes it's yes and sometimes it's no but it's really hard sometimes to work through that no i i think that's you know uh, whether that's the real problem with these types of philosophy really and this is one of the reasons why i left studying philosophy is there's a preoccupation with this idea that let's say happiness or fulfillment is a static singular geographic sure. point right but it is in fact in my opinion so relational and it's ever-changing. And I think with Stalker, what's interesting about this conversation, in reflection, is the only time you see anybody happy is when the Stalker's lying down in the grass or lying down on the beach and just not fucking doing anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's something very like he's nihilistic and Buddhistic. Right. right. And he, when he's in a moment, apart from this fucking annoying uh, dialogue by the two voices in his head, you could argue, you know, the writer and the professor, and the professor I think there's some deep, profound spiritual conversation there. And I, I think as well with the life that I've been through, a lot of these small snippets of conversation spoke to me on an academic level because I've had those thoughts before. Maybe spent too much time with all this YouTube psycho, uh, you know, psychology, thinking that we're supposed to find out who we really are as if that's like one character. But I think that's completely impossible. <laughs> I woke up this morning sick and miserable. The things that I like today are not going to be the things that I prized yesterday when I didn't feel this gross, right? Oh, for sure. But I mean, I think that's also the thing too, when you're younger, at least I thought this, you get to be whatever, some age, 25, 30, 40, so whatever it is. And, it's like, yeah. and then you're like, well, yeah, those you're are done. so old, but also like, yeah. well, you got to figure it out. You know exactly yeah. what you do. And then you're, you're static for the rest of your life. And it's like, well, no, that's actually not how it happens. You're constantly changing and your morals, not morals, but like what you value the most in life will change well, your morals over, over change. time. Absolutely. Your values change. Your happiness changes. But even to this quote, like for, for me to take the big, one of the biggest topics nowadays, which is going to open a huge can of worms, we'll say uh, climate change, right? Something that I personally believe is happening, but it's like, I care about that. And yet I drive a car, I travel, <laughs> I eat meat, like all the things that I do know do contribute to that problem. So it's like, but how much is, of it am I actually trying to change? This is the uh, guilt paradigm of propaganda. Sure. And I think that like, if we're going to talk about climate change and my personal actions towards it or against it, certainly, you know, Greta Thunberg or whatever have a point that dismissing it entirely is never going to be a solution. So uh, just being so cynical, they're like, well, it's not going to fucking matter anyways. It's, it's not great. But there is also an argument about the limits of human perception, meaning we use science, for example, with climate change, with this projection that, oh, well, in 50 years, we're all going to burn to death on a dry fucking broken land. But that uh, projection is limited by what we understand about math, what we understand about the environment. They're all always human-centric. Uh, I read this small article somewhere talking about how the context shouldn't be about us destroying the world. It's so egocentric, but we are affecting the world in which we can survive in. The earth itself will outlast humanity no matter what. And when we are off the face of this planet, it will regenerate life. We are not going to be able to kill the earth. I mean, how arrogant 
is that understanding. And so that leads to an arrogant uh, response where it's like, well, now we've got to save the planet. This planet doesn't need saving. We do. So the idea that, oh, well, now I've got to walk everywhere and only eat, you know, whatever is that. When I was uh, turning vegetarian, there was the fad, the 100 mile diet. So you can only mm. eat food that you can essentially go and walk out and, right. and secu secure yourself. In Canada, that is not possible. We do not have a fertile growing zone here. So in the winter, you would die. It just, it's such a stupid, stupid, short-sighted idea. So you shouldn't feel guilt. What we can do, I think, much like the stalker, if we keep this within the film, is simply just let that decision happen when it needs to happen. So if you are uh, visiting a friend where you know if I walk 45 minutes, eh, that's plausible, but I can drive there and be in five, then it's up to you to make a decision in that moment which person you'd rather be. And the real secret, Kyle, is that neither is incorrect. It's just mm. what it is. We do have an impact, but we don't have the only impact in the world around us. So, I, I mean, I think that's something that a lot of thinkers have realized. And often I think when they realize that, they become spiritual. You know, those famous quotes with Einstein and all these people that at the end of their reason, they realize there's too much more. And um, they start, you know, referring to God or to higher power or to spiritual, you know, the, the mysteries of the universe, whatever rhetoric they need to use to offend the least people. So... I don't know. You're not doing anything wrong other than uh, liking Fantasia too much. No matter what happens, I look forward to all humans dying. When that scene happened, I was thinking, I had this exact same problem. I had gone vegan, presumably for my health, but I love meat. And we watched so many, it was trending at the time to have all these documentaries about how meat is killing the planet. And when I decided to go back, I just don't give a fuck. I'll put a raw steak in my mouth now and not think about whether farting cows are going to choke out the air that I breathe. Not to devolve this this conversation too much on that specific issue, but what it keeps coming back to is like the individual can do as much as they can, but it, it requires industry and government to make big changes so that it just works. Otherwise, that, you're I kind mean, of like screaming into the wind a little bit. Uh, but anyways, I don't want to get too down that rabbit hole. There's two other quotes that I just want to bring up here, but the, that the stalker says, one, when a man thinks of the past, he becomes kinder. And then, the, and the other one, you can't be happy at the expense of others' unhappiness. Mm -hmm. I think these are just good things to, I don't know, be mantras almost. Like if your happiness is, is incumbent on making somebody else unhappy, then maybe you should rethink your life choices. It's called um, communism. Okay, fine. No, it, but that's the reflection, right? That's where it comes from. Uh, whether it's attainable or plausible, who knows? But that is the very core sentiment of any socialist, Marxist communist anti-capitalist thought is that the idea of capitalists to take advantage of other people uh, for my betterment right. and uh, when you're in a commune where you and i for example are making a podcast if suddenly it turned out that i was pocketing you know an extra 500 dollars because i said this thing that you weren't aware about uh, we would no longer be friends no matter how much we agreed on a particular film it's just impossible and yet that's what everybody wants because they think it'll make them happy I, i'm going to get out better job. That guy can't get my position. I need that position because I need to get a new car. Like it's, it's inherently stressful, right? So the only thing that remains in our power is not really our decision, but our ability to live with our decision. I think that's where I spend most of my life uh, now is um, not so much trying not to worry about whether clicking record is going to make somebody upset at me, but saying things that I'm okay with people being upset at me for, you know? And I, I think that's a difficult an ambiguous line, but... Well, I want everyone to love me, Dave. So. Oh, well, most of us do, and it is a sickness, but... 
you know, if somebody emails us and says, well, you guys are fucking idiots because Tarkovsky is a genius, then I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> Um, how about, how about that first one though? When a man thinks of the past, he becomes kinder. Oh, that's absolutely true. I know, um, uh, some background on your family, but look at how people are when they're old age. Like my parents used to be so angry all the time and now they just, I mean, they're drunk now, but they just sit back and nothing really affects them. And I think that's not out of detachment. I think they just realize as you get older that nothing you think matters actually matters. The only thing that matters is that you know, you're in a position to appreciate things. I think uh, having a kid for me was a big thing. Um, losing my job was a big thing. I think cynics will say it makes you hard and callous, but I think the opposite is true. I think this is a great opportunity for empathy. It, it sort of reminds me of that whole idea of those who don't know the past are destined to repeat it sort of mm -hmm. thing. There's also a quote that I always come back to that is attributed to Albert Einstein. I don't know if he actually said it, but it's usually attributed to him, which is, uh, I don't know what World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. In, in a way, it does feel like we are destined to blow uh, ourselves up. Again, the planet's going to be well, fine. Doing it. Humanity yeah. might not might not survive it we're trying our best i'm trying really hard too yeah there's you know um they just made a tv show the wheel of time i mean this is yeah. norse too whatever i read the first five books yeah uh before we realized George, robert jordan was never gonna fucking finish that series um and then well, he died before he did he did yeah, yeah. last three books are not <laughs> written by him that time is cyclical so i started thinking you know about uh what if dinosaurs were actually highly advanced civilization but they had started making everything out of compostable items so we get the bones but we don't see their technology <laughs> just a raptor they typing on a computer <laughs> it's fun to think about stuff like that right like they were they were green uh, visor on it's like oh my taxes yeah. again <laughs> as far as we can date it i mean again trusting our own science they lived for hundreds of millions of years and we've hardly breached mm -hmm. a half a million or something. And that number keeps changing, by the way. Every time I look at a new study, it's not 10,000, it's 500,000. Oh, human beings. It's, again, so arrogant. So why not? Why didn't they have flying cars? And we just saw the bones because their cars were made out of uh, something other than carbon. I think that the dinosaurs probably discovered that the earth was flat and then they destroyed themselves. I'm watching Thor, right? And we see the, the oceans coming off yeah. of uh, Asgard and I'm like, you know what? That does feel like reality. Let's do some backstory here then. <laughs> so this movie opened up in, in Russia on May 25th, 1979. It is rated currently 4.4 on Letterboxd. That means it's at the 32nd position of the top 250. It has 8.1 on IMDb. No available rating on Metacritic. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has 100% from 42 critics and 92% from 25,000 plus users. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can rent it on iTunes or Google Play, and you can stream it on the Criterion channel. Um, I do not know about budget or box office. Apparently, 4.3 million people saw it in the Soviet Union. I think that's a better metric, frankly, Kyle. But I've been saying this since bad. year one. I have no idea if that's good or bad. That's, I think that's fantastic. Well, I, I don't know about the number, but I just, mm -hmm. I love, I love that metric so much more. I would. Great. Well, you I find would, the website that tells me number no, of people. No, this is what it means to live in America, right? That the dollar is king and gross numbers mean that you're successful. But I would like to know how many people actually sat their ass down and watched these things because I think that's fascinating. Can you imagine if we had a metric like, let's remove Titanic's budget from every idiot that sat 20 times in a theater and we watch only, it's impossible, but only first time viewers. I bet that, you know, grand gross would have easily. And then you have to ask yourself, is that actually an epic, great film? Or 
you know, was something else. I, th- I think that's a more fun way to look at it. It's impossible. Also a five-star film, but sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Titanic so. was a five-star film. <laughs> hey, and, J- and James Cameron, I trust Dave. And James Cameron, wow. I trust. The plot description for this movie is a guide leads two men through an area known as the zone to find a room that grants wishes. That's what it says on IMDb. Although, again, as we it's described, wrong. doesn't really grant wishes. That's not really what the room is there for. Mm. But regardless. Mm. I love that idea, too, about uh, Porcupine that, like, he thought he knew what would make him happy. And mm-hmm. the room knew what would and he couldn't live with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the big thing. Again, kind of mentioned it there. But they talk about Porcupine, this guy that the stalker had previously brought out. He thought no, he to was the, room, the stalker's mentor. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's right. But basically goes to this room and he thinks that what's going to happen is that his dead brother is going to get revived because he loved him so much. But instead, he became fabulously wealthy, meaning that his more deeper desire was to become wealthy, not to save his brother. That's the big thing. (laughs) Okay, so like I said, no game this week because there was no tagline apparently for this movie. At least not in English. I would have loved to hear you say it in Russian, though. Would have been amazing. Star Comrade. Yeah, uh, it stars Alexander... (laughs) Kidanovsky as the stalker, Anatoly Solonitsyn as Pizatel, I think that's supposed to be the writer, Nikolai Grinko as the professor, and Elisa Friedlich as Jenna Stockera. So we'll get into this in a bit, but there are a few different cinematographers associated with this movie. The first being Georgi Rurberg, but his cinematography is not used in this movie. We'll find out why. And then we have really Alexander Knishevsky, who did most of it, who basically did this movie and three other Russian films whose names I can't pronounce. So I'm mm-hmm. not even going to try. I'd hoped you would try. This is based on the novel Roadside Picnic that was written by Adelie and Boris Shugatsky. They also helped with the screenplay, as did Andrei Tarkovsky, with poems written by Arseny Tarkovsky. Um, I forgot to look at that, but I think that might be his son. Sure. We should look that up probably, but it directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. So the novel. The Strugarsky brothers are these extremely influential science fiction writers. Uh, We do not have time to go into how much they influence science fiction in total, specifically in the Soviet Union, but also the rest of the world. But just know, kind of a big deal. In 1972, they published this book called Roadside Picnic, uh, which even to this day is like the most popular thing that they've ever written, uh, just based on sales of, of the book itself. The book is quite different than the movie it was adapted into. Uh, for one thing, it takes place in England. Uh, there's really just the one protagonist that they follow instead of like the three people that are going through. Uh, his wife has not given birth yet. There's multiple journeys into the zone and back out. They keep going in and out. Uh, and there's a vastly different ending that involves him leaving it to the cube inside the room to decide what he gets in in relation to it so there's a little bit of a conversation with that cube that they discover in the room at the end of the novel i just thought of this is that why he won't go in the room because he thinks he won't heal his daughter yes i think that is what the subtext is now the book describes that there are these six visitation sites around the world that happened on the span of two days so it is definitely aliens who have come down to earth it is explicitly that in the book but nobody saw them they we just see the remnants of their visit stalker is a slang term used for people who travel into these zones to steal the tech and then come back out and sell it this is a good sidebar to say of course in english stalker has a vastly different meaning they just made this word up though it'd be kind of like the word jedi if it meant something in japanese or something like that it's just a word that was made up but actually means something else in a different language 
That's what happened here. So stalker has nothing to do with the English word stalker. Anyways, Dave, you might be asking the question, why did they call it a roadside picnic then? <laughs> I was just thinking, why did they call it roadside picnic then? Here is the analogy that the character gives in the middle of the book when they said, well, picture a forest, a country road, a meadow, cars drive off the country road into the meadow, a group of young people get out carrying bottles, baskets of food, transistor radios and cameras, they light fires, pitch tents, turn on the music. In the morning, they leave. The animals, birds and insects that watched in horror through the long night creep out from their hiding places. And what do they see? Old spark plugs and old filters strewn around, rags, burnt out bulbs and a monkey wrench that's left behind. And of course, the usual mess. Apple cores, candy wrappers, charred remains of the campfire, cans, bottles. Take your garbage with you. Somebody's handkerchief, somebody's oh penknife, torn newspapers, coins, faded flowers, pickled in another meadow like a roadside picnic. So basically, these visitation sites are just them stopping off for like a night and leaving all their detritus behind. That is what I, the analogy is. I remember even in the 80s thing is so gross. People used to just roll down their windows in their cars and just throw, and throw their out. fucking food, cigarette butts, tissues, whatever, and then just drive away. We are advancing as a culture, Kyle. It's just too slow. I think people should litter more. That, I mean, there's that famous, I think it's on the very first episode of Mad Men or the second episode where they go for the picnic and they just like throw everything onto the ground and then walk away after they're, they're finished their, their picnic. So that was a thing that used to happen back in the day. Growing up where I live, yeah, people all the time throwing like McDonald's or whatever fast food they get and just, just the, the whole bag window. out the window into the, what they call the ditch, right, in, right into the ditch. So That's uh, what happened in Vancouver Island. You know about mm -hmm. that, right? How they used to just have a pipe and just poured their shit literally into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And then they realized it floats back. So instead of putting in a waste treatment plant, you know what they did? What's that? They built a longer pipe. <laughs> How's that well, for a cheaper. human? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. How's that for a reflection on humanity? That's right, Vancouver. I'm from Toronto. We don't get along. Now, Tarkovsky reads this book, likes it quite a bit, but initially offers it to a friend and fellow director. That director could not secure the rights for whatever reason, so that's when Tarkovsky swoops in and makes it his next project. Now, as you said, like what happens in the book really doesn't is not what happens in the movie. He's much more interested in the philosophical struggle of the characters. So he departs from the source material, basically keeping only the, the, the stalker name, the fact that there's a zone, and the use of bolts in the cloth to test whether or not they're going the right way. Those are kind of the only things he keeps from the book. Now, I mentioned the first cinematographer, his stuff was not used. He was fired. So, Georgie Verberg uh, was hired. They go out and photograph all these outdoor scenes and shots for a year. They're out there shooting a huge percentage of the film. I forget if it was like 70 or 80% of the movie was you know, shot. Then they return, get the film developed, and it's all unusable. They could not use it. <laughs> From what I read, this is partly because the Russian film developers were unfamiliar with this new Kodak film that Tarkovsky was using, but it also gave a good excuse for Tarkovsky to, to get rid of Verberg because he didn't want him around anymore. So then they go and reshoot the whole entire movie again <laughs> because that's what you get to Government do. Government money, yeah. The Russian film board is like, um, we think you should shut this production down. We've, you've already spent a year trying to make this movie. Then Tarkovsky gives him a deal. Well, what if... I make this a two-part film. That way you're only paying one price for two movies. Although it does give him a little bit of extra funding, the fact that he's making two movies now. This is why there is like title cards twice in this movie, once at the beginning and once in the middle, is because technically it was released as two films, even though it's really just the one film. According to some people who worked on the movie, the second time they go out and shoot, the script actually 
vastly differed. Like he went and rewrote a bunch of it. So they are kind of two different movies. As another side note, Rurberg refutes all of this. Uh, there's an entire documentary apparently called Rurberg versus Tarkovsky that goes into much more detail. It's one of those situations where I think it's like he said one thing, Tarkovsky says another thing, and probably both of them are saying elements of the truth and falseness. So who really knows what actually happened? Regardless, he's he's fired. Tarkovsky reshoots the movie and um, he Kubricks it in that he just shoots tons of footage, like just tons of it, uh, and then cobbles it down to like this two and a half hour runtime, but like shooting like 10 hours of footage to get it down to, to this. Then it also enters into uh, the Conqueror situation. Do you know what the Conqueror is, Dave? No. That's the movie that John Wayne played Genghis Khan and oh, then, nice. like, everyone died from cancer who worked on that film because they were just choking on, like, ass. Um, oh, like Wizard of Us. Like the. Oh, God, the. Asbestos. Asbestos dust that was in the dirt and stuff like that. Because a bunch of the people who worked on this movie, and ultimately Tarkovsky himself, all died from causes associated with toxic chemical exposure. Because they were spending so much time in these abandoned factories and nice. stuff like that uh, without any protection. That's what a vast majority of the people on this film died of a few years later. This leads to the death of a bunch of people because they went and were inhaling toxic chemical fumes. In the zone. It's released in the Russian government, as we mentioned here, was not too happy about it. They believed it to be a bit too slow and too philosophical. Tarkovsky's response was that he only cared about two people and what they thought about the movie, which was... Brasson and Bergman. Now, the reason we're talking about the movie this week, however, is that it's grown in estimation over the decades, as has most of Tarkovsky's filmography. Of course, considered one of the Soviet, one of the greatest Soviet filmmakers, this movie would go on to win the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 1979. And if you go to the Wikipedia page of this movie at the bottom, you'll see every book, film, TV show, and video game that either outright references this movie or is directly inspired by it. And it's not a short list. It goes on for a long time, like every single thing that was basically inspired by this movie. Perhaps the biggest way that it survived into popular culture, though, is like within Russia. So that term stalker, which again, yes, has a very different meaning in English, but in, in Russia, stalker has gone on to be a colloquial term that they still use. So it started from this movie. It now means a person who goes into an area is usually abandoned for the explicit purpose to explore through it. They're just going into a abandoned place that they're not supposed to be at and explore. I may have spent a bit too much time here this week going to YouTube because Russian YouTubers, this is like one of their biggest things that they do. They go to these abandoned sites and just walk around and jump to different places and, and film the whole thing. And they call themselves stalkers. That is what they actually call themselves in those videos. So at least in Russia, the term has like survived even the film itself. Fascinating. Big cultural weight. I guess I should start stalking. I guess just topically, the more we talk about this, it's like 1971. The more we talk about a film, whether I liked watching it or not, the more meat there is on the bones of art cinema or challenging cinema dealing with civil rights or religion as opposed to popcorn flicks, right? And so as we're talking, I keep thinking my numerical score is going to go up. <laughs> yeah. Because... Uh, you know, it's a pretty interesting film. The, I, I agree with you. The more I talk about it, the more I become positive towards it. There's two things, last things I just want to bring up. But let's do the very end first, which is the, the daughter with the telekinetic abilities. In the book, I didn't mention this, but in the book, it is explicitly mentioned that after a stalker goes into the zone and comes back, their children have mutations. Mm. 
So it's something that happens in the zone and they bring it back. And so it's like a big thing. It's like, should they have children or not? Like, is this a what's going to happen to this baby that his wife is expecting? So it's something that is kind of communicated. It's sort of mentioned in this movie, but again, not explicitly. There, There's allusions to it. And like the fact that the room shakes is the fact they even mentioned at the very beginning that these weird earthquakes that are happening because of when the stalkers come back, these earthquakes happen. Again, symbolizing that their children may have these telekinetic abilities at the same time. At least that's how I'm reading it. I don't know if that's what was meant by it, but that's what I'm reading into it. But I know, do you have anything that you want to read into that very final moment of her moving the no. cups around? I thought it was, uh, it was the worst part of the film for me. Mm. I, I feel like it ended in a sour note for that. I think, too, we've been so inundated with um, superhero superhero culture, so it really stands out. I don't know how an audience in, what is this, 1978, 79, this new movie comes out. Especially in the Soviet Union with that last scene imply what you're talking about in the book i don't know i thought that part was a mess it did come out of nowhere for me i have to say like i did yeah when that started happening like oh this is the first like explicitly paranormal thing like a person is doing it's like oh i was not seeing this coming at all i didn't like the ending uh like that scene you know when they reappear in the cafe and we go back to the sepia tone and we have to start asking hey did the journey even happen was this conversation between them you know that's when i started getting this thought like maybe they're not real people maybe there's just different lines of thinking for him and then we go from sepia into color as uh the wife they're walking in a park and he's carrying her walking away you see the big factories in the background so like the color is meant to i think give us a sense of, you know, reality and happiness and enjoying these moments. And then she does her monologue in black and white or in sepia tone. So, you know, there's some neat little ideas, mm-hmm. um, but it's so weird that maybe the only way to enjoy it is talking about it with another nerd because as a sit-through, it is very awkward. <laughs> right? uh, well, talking about that speech she gives directly to camera, this is the, what she says. So she turns to the camera. She's like, I think she's smoking a cigarette, if I remember correctly. And she says, you know, Mama was very opposed to it. You've probably already guessed that he's one of God's fools. Everyone around here used to laugh at him. He was such a wretched muddler. Mama used to say he's a stalker, a marked man, an eternal jailbird. Remember the kind of children stalkers have? I didn't even argue. I knew all about it, that he was a marked man, a jailbird. I knew about the kids. Only what could I do? I was sure I'd be happy with him. I knew there would be a lot of sorrow, but I'd rather know bittersweet happiness than a gray, uneventful life. Perhaps I invented all this later, but when he came up to me and said, come with me, I went, and I've never regretted it. Never. There was a lot of grief and fear and pain, but I've never regretted it, nor envied anyone else. It's just fate. It's life. It's us. And if there were no sorrow in our lives, it wouldn't be better. It would be worse, because then there'd be no happiness either, and there'd be no hope. So, again, mentions the kids, so there's like that little reference of like, hey, there's something going on with the kids that that uh, stalkers have. But I love that idea of like, listen, I knew I could have not been with this person, not been in this relationship. To the outside observer, it would be better, but I want the ups and downs. I want to live this life with him and have grief and sorrow and happiness because it makes the happiness feel better because you need to have that sorrow in your life as well. I don't know. It's a kind of a beautiful sentiment that she wraps up. Yeah, it's perfect. I used to pick sort of arguments about how, you know, to label yourself an atheist, you had to have been a theist first because you have to define something that you're against. So yeah, I love stuff like this. I love this idea that being flat in the middle is better is insane. That's that's the industrialist idea that you're supposed to be this robot, unthinking, unfeeling. You fit into this perfect hole and now you're an efficient member of society and that is what it means to exist correctly. Yeah. And that is not 
possible. We are not rational, you know, we're... Well, I had this exact situation. So in my early 20s, I went, uh, I don't know if they were psychologists or psychiatrists, but one of those. And I, I talked about like, I suffer from these like depressive bouts. I have this anxiety. And then they prescribed me this uh, medication to take. And I took it for a while, for a few months. It just leveled me out. So what was going on is like, I was not sad, but I also wasn't happy. I was just like mm -hmm. this middle, even keel thing. I also had no sex drive, which was really weird. So it was just like, yeah, I'm existing. Oh, and so eventually thing. I was like, I don't know if this is how I want my life to be. I kind of want to have the peaks and valleys because just a monotone life just feels weird and like an unlived life. Anyways, it was it's, that's what spoke to me from that speech. This person told me once uh, in a pendulum metaphor, we have sort of positive and negative experiences, right? And when it swings too wild wildly, we get into these really, really problematic areas, whether it's addiction or violence or whatnot. And we get manic depression and schizophrenia because we can't control reality. But if we try to stay right in the middle, then you're dead because you don't feel anything. So the purpose of any kind of spiritual enlightenment is to just manage how much you swing each way so that you can always vacillate between good and bad things. So I don't want to be dead either, pal. Uh, and mm -hmm. you know me, I'm I'm a pretty emotionally unstable person sometimes, but uh, a lot more stable now than I used to be. And it's fun uh, finding the middle. But, you know, to your point about, let's say, sex drive, uh, for the last year and a half, like I'm not out taking pictures anymore. And I'm not out, you know, stalking the streets <laughs> to build art. And so I've been reflecting on that too, uh, whether... But one of my anti-seizure medicines actually um, one treated for bipolar. So there is a plausibility that the price for me not falling on the floor and breaking my face on tile is that uh, I can't go out and uh, do extreme things anymore. So uh, these are, yeah. What does it mean to be human, Kyle? What does it mean to be human? <laughs> We're done here. The, the, the machine knows all about that and has told us that we do have to wrap things up here. So let's get into Critics' Choice. This is the part of the show where we see what the critics thought at the time this film was released, except I don't know. Uh, weirdly enough, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael both did not write about this film that I could find. Oh. So I went on to uh, the uh, Google to find out that Tasha Robinson, a good modern critic that I actually like, Loves this film. Gives it five out of five stars. She writes, uh, I love this film. It's staggeringly beautiful, even when it's set into cane factories and amid the junky remnants of past wars. It's heady and dreamlike and philosophical, and it's also just plain weird. It's certainly slow, but that contributes to the atmosphere of deliberate and hesitancy and decay. And the little flare-ups of despair and anger the characters go through are enough punctuation for me. The eerie score is a big plus in setting the tone, but ultimately... I'm in it for the visuals, while all, which are all still like nothing else I've ever seen on screen. Um, I tried to find like a really like negative, but nothing was really all that well written in the negative category. So this is like a medium review by uh, James Healy on Letterboxd, who gave it three and a half stars. The second part of the film also has some pacing issues, but not nearly as bad. The cinematography can be really great at times, but at others, shots overstay their welcome. What I love most about Stalker is the set design. It just looks absolutely fantastic. The thing that disappointed me the most with Stalker was how anticlimactic it was. Nothing is ever resolved, and the entire film, for the characters, is almost an entire waste of time. As odd as this sounds, I can't help but compare Tarkovsky to Tarantino. I find both of them to be very good directors, but neither of them know how to pace a film properly. Tarkovsky's films start out way too slow, while Tarantino doesn't know when to cut the unnecessary bullshit. That's a weird pull. Yeah, that's a weird pull. Yeah, I don't know about the Tarantino comparison, to be honest with you, but... I mean, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan either, but it, I feel like they're polar opposites. Tarantino's trying way too hard to just mm. shock and awe you to a point where you're just bored of it. 
Dave, does this film hold up and is it still culturally relevant? That's the question we ask each week. Well, clearly it's culturally relevant. It's still well loved by the art and crit- critical circle. And you're saying it has a powerful impact in Russian society. So we'll say yes. I actually think it holds up reasonably well for what it is. It still looks beautiful um, mm-hmm. when it needs to. And it still spurs on conversation because it's not tied to a specific event in time. It's just talking about the human condition. So I'll go yes and yes. Yeah, I'm going to say yes and yes too. I think, like I said, I keep thinking that I'm probably going to increase my my score on this eventually. It's just, yeah. I think my expectations were so high. There's like, oh, this is not what I was right? coming into this. It's like a 4.5 on Letterboxd, top 100 something. And then you turn it on and it's like, oh, am I dumb? <laughs> All right. Well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. Uh, we'd love to know what you think, so you can f- send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the Machine at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also do release videos on our YouTube channel, and if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings that we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page. That's letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. If you want to support us monetarily, which would be very greatly appreciated, you can take a look at the link in the show notes of this episode to our Patreon page, where you can support for as low as a dollar per month. And something that you can do for absolutely free, which also really helps us out, is to leave a review and rating on whatever app you use for podcasts. Dave, what are you going to give Stalker out of five? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to start off with a 3.5. And I'm going to write in Letterboxd that it's a first viewing. And likely if I ever watch this again, it'll probably go up a full star. But mm-hmm. I can't stop talking about it, Kyle. Yeah. We, this is the first time in a while we did an hour and a half recording. I actually talked about uh, the like thematic things and not just asides and weird weird time fillers. So Well, the weird part of it, Dave, is I'm actually reading it a bit lower than you. That doesn't happen mm-hmm. very often. I'm giving it a, a three. I'm sticking mm. to my three, which does not tie with anything. It is going to enter our list at the new number 17 position on our Letterbox Top 250 watch along here. So right above A Clockwork Orange and right below La Samurai. Dave, we've been leading up to this moment. We need to reveal what year the machine is taking us to to discuss for our next full season. We've revealed that it starts with a two, then it's mm-hmm. a zero, then it's a one. So what year? Are we going to go? I'm going to push this button on the machine. Dun, 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 dun. Dave. 2018. We're going to talk about a film year that's only five years old. So we'll get into it. I, I, I feel that we can't really ask the question, is this still culturally relevant on any of the films that we're talking about from five years ago. Well, not not all of them. But you know what's interesting to that point is that COVID, much like 9-11, has been such a big cultural touchstone. I think we can answer that question more Mm. so than maybe we could have, um, you know, let's say in 2020 about a 2015 film. I just feel like so much has happened culturally. True enough. I think, though, that Maybe the other question that we should start to ask is for certain films, like, do you think this film will be reevaluated years later, or do you think this is going to no. grow in popularity well, as the years think go about on? The BLM, Me Too movement, COVID, uh, the insurrection. Like, there are so many things that have happened in the last five years. Well, think about it. <laughs> That's just America. Never mind the world. 2018 is two years into the Trump presidency. I <laughs> am very confident there's going to be a lot of uh, talk yeah. about tyranny inside of the films yeah. that we watch in, in 2018. But We should find out then what our very first film that we're going to be talking about of our new season is. Let me push this button here. 
Oh, we're going to start off with a comedy, Dave. We're going to watch The Favorite. It's a great movie. We're gonna, I'm going to be so biased this year. because uh, You are. I'm going to be the one tempering you down. I'm be like, Dave, it's not a five-star <laughs> film. What are you talking about? It's not Fantasia, Dave. If people could hear the expression <laughs> on my face, it's one of shock and awe and disgust. Mm-hmm. All right, Dave. Well, I guess you can go back to your family if you want to, if you want to leave this zone of my condo. Oh, gross. I, what happened to the cabin? I just, I miss it a little bit. The smell was oh, musky. We, 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 we doused that in, in gasoline and I flicked a match at it. It is gone, baby. <laughs> Where are we going to live in 2018? You're going back to your house. I think people should litter more.